A good story often starts with a compelling setting that hints at things to come. And today's conversation with Jesus from John 4 is no different. You can follow along on page 1618 of the Pew Bible if you'd like, or find John 4.4 in your own Bible. Again, page 1618. The paraphrased conversation you just heard is set in a most controversial place, Samaria, between Jesus and a very controversial conversation partner, a Samaritan woman. To an upstanding Jewish person, Samaria was a place you didn't ever want to go. Because of centuries-old bad blood rooted in political and religious quarrels, many Jews would travel far out of their way to avoid contaminating themselves in Samaria. The people of Samaria claimed Jewish heritage, but also Gentile pagan heritage because of intermarriage, and they followed a mixed religious tradition that reflected those influences. While they accepted the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, they rejected the rest, and they had their own parallel, blended way of worship, which was totally unacceptable to Jews, who were concerned with ritual and religious purity. The animosity between these two groups was characterized by disgust and open hostility. But this is where we find Jesus, walking right in and sitting right down in the middle of enemy territory. He sits down on the well that belonged to the Jews and Samaritans' ancestor Jacob and starts talking to a stranger. I mean, what would the neighbors think? Not only was it scandalous that Jesus chose to travel through Samaria, but that he was talking to a Samaritan at all, but all the much worse because she was female. In both Jewish and Samaritan culture, righteous men didn't talk to women in public in general, and certainly not to an unknown woman. This wasn't just a highly patriarchal culture, but according to the writing of Ben Sira, an influential Jewish scholar writing about 200 years before Jesus, women were said to be responsible for sin in this world and gave, quote, rise to shame and reproach. Men were counseled against even speaking to their wives in public, much less to stranger. Meanwhile, women were expected to be at home and not involved in public life. Jesus' behavior in this story and many others showed a radical level of esteem and care for women that was most definitely countercultural. Another note on our story, it was also culturally abnormal for a woman to be drawing water at a well at noon. Women usually came in groups to the well for propriety and I'm sure for security's sake. And the pattern was to come early in the day or at the end of the day just before sunset to avoid the worst of the heat. But here's a woman alone in the middle of the day, approached and being spoken to by a lone foreign man. I mean, can't you hear the village whispers? There are several parts to this conversation, starting with the simple and getting much more complex as it goes. Reading in verse 7, we can see their initial exchange, where Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. She is shocked. She's shocked, number one, that he's there. She's shocked, number two, that he's talking to her. And she's shocked, number three, that he's asking her for a drink of water. This request is shocking for all the cultural reasons we've just named, but also for the practical implications. Drinking from the bucket of a Samaritan would defile and shame a Jew. And as she points out later, Jesus was empty-handed. But Jesus responds to her understandable retort 
with a major twist. He suggests that if she knew what was going on and who he was, she would be asking him for the drink. Her confusion is clear as she points to his empty hands and she even challenges him. It sounds a bit scoffing to me. Where can you get this living water, she asks. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? The answer, of course, is yes. He is greater than Jacob, far greater. But he doesn't enter into self-defense or explain his credentials. Instead, he goes a step deeper. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will be in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So he's clearly not talking about the well here. But what is he talking about? In parallel with the conversation with Nicodemus, where Jesus gives ideas like birth and wind and spirit new meanings, here Jesus is not talking about simple H2O, but something far more thirst-quenching. In the Gospel of John, living water is used to talk about the Holy Spirit and the fullness of life experienced by those who would accept Jesus' message. In John 7, Jesus stands up in the temple on a major feast feast day and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, writes John whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Jesus is telling the simple Samaritan woman there is an entirely new way to be human, a different quality of life that goes way past centuries-old well water. He says this living water not only quenches a person's thirst, but they will never be thirsty again. Jesus says this living water doesn't just quench a person's thirst, but will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The radical, satiating water doesn't just satisfy the recipient, but becomes an ongoing source of overflowing life gifted by God that lasts forever and impacts all around us. Now, even as a privileged modern person with easy access to clean drinking water at every turn, I think, man, wouldn't it be great if I could just take one sip of the right thing and never be dependent on my fridge or my faucet again? It sounds like an alluring level of physical freedom. But the Samaritan woman's perspective is probably a lot closer to my friends in Kenya. Um, The women on the screen are some ladies that Tim got to meet last year when he was there. Uh, They've been displaced displaced from their homes by violence for many years, forced to live in a desert land in the north without access to fresh water. For these women, like many around the world even today, Digging for water in dangerous conditions and unclean places is a life-or-death chore from which they simply cannot escape. So when Jesus is offering a new kind of water, I can imagine that even info on a new source of clean drinking water probably was enough to grab the Samaritan woman's attention in a serious way. So, she bites. Still a bit confused, the woman asked Jesus to give her this special water so that she can be relieved of the arduous daily dependence on Jacob's well. Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. But he says first, call your husband to join you. 
Now, this would be an understandable, even an honorable thing to do um, before he gave her a gift to ask that her husband to be present. Um, but then the truth comes tumbling out. This woman is hard-worn by life. We aren't given any explanation of how she had already had five husbands. They all died in succession, leaving her widowed many times over. Unlikely, but possible. Was she many times divorced? The text doesn't say. We don't know the details, but whatever the cause, it would have been a very heavy load to bear in a Near East shame-based culture. Even more, Jesus points out that she is now with a man to whom she's not married. Perhaps the village exclusion and rejection are what fuels her midday appearance at a well alone. In response to his surprising knowledge about her life, her eyes are opened. Perhaps he's not just a snake oil salesman trying to sell her oceanfront property in a desert. She says, hmm, I can see that you are a prophet. Throughout this conversation, her understanding of Jesus' identity changes. At first, she was, he was just a tired, thirsty Jewish man with no apparent respect for custom. But after he exposes, gently as he does, the brokenness of her relational experiences, she sees that he must be much more. A prophet, someone with an inside connection to God and some serious authority. So she asks a politically and religiously controversial question about the proper place to worship. Naturally, right? In one sense, yes. Again, we aren't told why the woman brings this up. Some commentators suggest she may be genuinely hoping to resolve a generations-old feud about the proper place for God's temple. But many others suggest it was a matter of embarrassed deflection. And this is easy to imagine. Most people, when they're called on the carpet about something they'd rather leave unseen, will deflect to something, anything, to get their eye, other people's eyes off of themselves. I mean, what better distraction method than a broiling political controversy? This would be like someone today being shown to earn a living by selling street drugs, only to turn the conversation onto candidates for the 2020 presidential election. No controversy there, right? But while affirming the Jews are the people through whom God had chosen to reveal himself, Jesus points past the physical location of worship to a much greater reality. He says that the time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. By his coming to earth to pursue reconciled relationship between God and all people, Jesus was ushering in a new way of relating to God that was not based on upkeep of traditions in a physical building. Instead, the Father, God himself, is seeking worshipers who will embrace Jesus, the truth, and his Holy Spirit, and be transformed by his pursuing love. The woman shakes her head slightly, I imagine even gives a small shoulder shrug, and says, I know the Messiah is coming, and when he arrives, he'll sort all this out. Perhaps she felt like you or I might when we get in a debate with a neighbor or friend about politics and find ourselves at a seemingly unresolvable impasse of he said, she said. She's not sure what to do with Jesus' teaching on true worship, but she's been taught her whole life that there's a Messiah in the Samaritan understanding, a prophet, teacher figure, who's coming who will sort out all the arguments. But then the most jaw-dropping moment comes when Jesus says, I, the one who am speaking to you, I am he. 
This I am statement, the first in the Gospel of John, is Jesus' way of revealing his true identity as one with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose well they are standing by. Starting with Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3, I am, or I am who I am, is how God introduces and names himself to his people. The name, the I am, is not a subtle or confusing thing to a Jewish or even a Samaritan audience. Jesus records seven times in his gospel, sorry, John records seven times in his gospel account where Jesus gives statements about himself that begin with I am. I am the bread of life, the light of the, the, light of the world, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life, etc. And then there are also seven times, starting with this one right here in John 4, where Jesus uses I am without any qualifiers or metaphors to describe himself, a direct claim to be divine, one with God himself. In some cases in the book of John, people listening to him fall to the ground out of shock and perhaps terror. Sometimes his claim about himself is met with confusion or doubt or other times belief. And in yet another scene in John 8, people pick up stones to throw at him because equating oneself to be one with God is sheer blasphemy. Unless, unless it's true. It's remarkable when you step back to think that the nameless Samaritan woman in our story is the first to hear this proclamation by Jesus in John's telling of the story. Of all people, not a Jew, not a man, not a religious leader, but quite the opposite in every respect. And she believes. She abandons her water jar and runs to tell all the people about the one who claims to be the awaited Messiah. Do you see the progression? She goes from seeing him as a thirsty, somewhat scandalous Jewish man to someone who is saying yet more scandalous things and offering something surely too good to be true to accepting him as the prophet to believing his claim to be the Messiah himself. And when the folks returned from her town to see for themselves, many more believed, the text says. And they said in verse 42, we know that this man really is the savior of the world. This revealing and focus on Jesus' identity fits well with John's purpose for writing. He says he wrote this book, the book of John, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. It's an amazing story in its own right. It makes an amazing contrast to the story of Nicodemus, which we heard last week from Amy. Do you see the trajectories? A high-up member of the Jewish ruling council comes in the dark of night to hide his curiosity, his thirst, and is told by Jesus that knowledge alone is not enough, but that he must be born again experience a spiritual birth in order to participate in the kingdom of God. And we're not told outright Nicodemus's response, but he disappears off the scene and shows up a couple of other times in John's story as sympathetic to Jesus for sure, but a little bit unclear about where his allegiances lie. Contrast that with this dear salt-of-the-earth Samaritan woman, nameless, though perhaps infamous in her village for her checkered past, she comes looking for water in the noonday sun and stumbles into Jesus, who she totally doesn't get at first. But she responds step by step and comes to believe he is the Messiah, 
And leaving her water jar behind, she goes and runs to preach an apparently compelling, though very simple, evangelistic message that results in many more coming to follow Jesus. And just like that, she becomes the most unlikely witness to Jesus' true identity. Much like the women who, against all cultural expectations, became the first announcers of Jesus' resurrection. So, who do you identify with in this story? Do you identify with a Samaritan woman? Perhaps there has been a season in your life when you felt outside, or shunned, or disqualified by some part of your story. Whether by gender, or by a lack of education, because of ethnic identity, or perhaps repetitive personal failures even in your own past. Maybe you, even now, feel like the very last person that the Messiah would come to personally pursue. Perhaps others have told you or you have heard your enemies' whispers in the dark of night. If people only knew. If they knew what you were really like. If they knew how broken you were. How dysfunctional. Too whatever. Too something to have a place in God's family. If that's you, please see and hear the gracious kindness of God in Jesus. Who pursues and includes, welcomes and forgives. He names the woman's broken relational story, not ignoring the reality of sin and pain, but it is not a stumbling block in allowing him to bring her new and overflowing life. Even if you see yourself, though, as fairly put together, successful, confident, a cultural insider, do you know your own thirst? The anxiety of public conversation this week and this year, even before the virus, is a reflection of the deep need for humanity, for meaning and help in our broken world. But have you allowed yourself to feel, deep down inside, the ache in your bones, the personal longing for a new way of being? For many in this room, the answer is yes. We have seen and known our longing for peace, for hope, for purpose, for safety, for belonging. And we have looked and we continue to look to Jesus for quenching of our thirst. God's offer of the free gift of new life in him is beautifully found in a different saying in Isaiah 55. It reads, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me and your soul may live. If you have not said yes to Jesus' invitation to drink from the living water, let this be the day. And as you encounter him, Let the Samaritan woman be your model. The one who, though she didn't understand everything, even didn't understand much at all, quite frankly, at the beginning, she was willing to admit her thirst and to simply ask him for a drink. And for all of us, whether new or seasoned on the journey with Jesus, you too have a role to play in telling others of the thirst-quenching transformation you've experienced. But take note for a minute of Jesus' way with the woman in the story as a model for yourself. 
He pursues and intentionally initiates conversation with someone who others might see as disqualified. He's patient, not defensive, with her evasion, her deflection, the pushback, and even her partial understanding. He gently and graciously names her thirst, not to shame or condemn, but to name what is true. He invites, he doesn't force or push, but calls out the thirst in her life in an invitational way. And then he responds to her ask, even though at the first it was very weak. I love how Frederick Dale Bruner describes this process. He writes, even when our faith is weak, that our asking is not entirely right or not even quite orthodox, Jesus still keeps his promise. If you just ask, I will give. And he straightens her and us out later. It isn't when our faith is large and imposing like a great mountain or like a beautiful jewel that we get the Lord's wonderful gifts. Indeed, the grace of the gospel is that when our faith is even the size and shape of a puny mustard seed, as this woman's faith is right now, the Lord moves even the greatest mountains and gives even his most precious jewels. So simple and real does Jesus want people to be with him. Not only is this tenderness of God good news for us often weak and doubting askers, but it is also a model for how we are to interact with those to whom we also want to introduce the water of life. But there's one more part of the story we haven't read, which can be found starting in verse 31 of John 4, and I want to address it just briefly. Just as the woman runs away, you see, to tell the town of who she's just met, the disciples, who had been off shopping for food, return and awkwardly silent about seeing Jesus talking to a woman, try to bring the scene back to safe territory by urging Jesus to eat what they've just brought him. And true to form, Jesus turns the conversation around and tells the very confused disciples, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. He explains that his food is to do the will of him who sent me, meaning God the Father, and to finish his work. Jesus models and invites his followers then as well as now, them as well as you and me, to be participants in the spiritual food, which is to tell others about the gift of the living water. I take courage from the disciples. Though they walked and talked and ate and lived with Jesus for several years in the flesh, they still often just didn't get it. And often, quite frankly, neither do we. We allow our very real physical hungers and fears and concerns to overwhelm our spiritual vision. But one part of the beauty, one part of, the beauty of the overflowing life that Jesus promises is that those who have quenched their deep-down thirst at his fountain are freed from panic searching. We who have been satisfied by Jesus' water are freed from the need to feed ourselves first. We who have been satisfied by Jesus' water are freed to give ourselves to offering cool drinks of water to our neighbors in service and to point them to the spring of water that does not run dry. We are freed to look for where the Father is at work in every moment, in every circumstance, and to join him. May we all become more like him in our posture toward our neighbors and our friends, people who call out what is true, graciously naming the thirst we see in this world 
and by our living and our speaking be people who testify to the living water. John says he wrote this gospel account so that we might know who Jesus is and respond to his radical claim to be God in the flesh, the ultimate revelation of God's intentional pursuing love. So whoever you identify with at this moment in time, are you willing to ask Jesus to show you more? Maybe for the first time. Are you willing to risk on his offer and trust him with your thirst? Are you willing to risk on his well and tell others what you found? Listen again as we close to the invitation in Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend your money on what is not bread? and your labor on what does not satisfy. Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful story that shows us in really in living color um, what you're like your intentional pursuit of those, um, even those who the world would rather ignore, your intentional pursuit of each of us, your invitation for something so much more than what we usually think it is. We thank you, Father, for the model, too, of the Samaritan woman. May we be more like her. Would you help us to connect with the thirst that we each carry and to look to you for its satisfaction? Pray this in the name of Jesus.